0: I'm Sue Elvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode eighteen, uh, the first one for a new year. So I thought we'd talk a little bit a bit about resolutions, as well as literature, and course language. And I also want to share with you another piece of music from Free Music Archive. Um, yeah, this piece is very different from last week's piece. In my last podcast, I played a piece by Dexter Britton, which electronic classical, I think you could call it. But this week, I have a piece by Origami Repetica. The real name of uh, the person composing and playing this piece is Adam Sigmund. He comes from the USA, and he seems a very friendly person. He's been to my blog and left me a couple of comments after I used one of his pieces in a video yeah, he produces electronica, ambient techno, and electro pop. Some of his pieces are described as chip music, and I had no idea what chip music was until I heard his music, and maybe it's not a piece of music I would have thought that I would have liked. If if somebody had said to me, oh, I have a nice piece of chip music here, would you like to listen? I probably would have thought it wasn't my type of music, which just goes to show that sometimes we are surprised by new experiences, and yeah, Shouldn't just stay with what we know, but go out there with an open mind and we might discover something very exciting, very interesting. Now I've played one of Origami Repetica's pieces before in my podcast. It's the same piece that I used as a backing track for one of my videos, and it's called Mighty Little Bumblebee, a very bouncy, happy piece of music. And today I've chosen another piece, and it's called Sunny Morning Exercise Club. Uh, dancey, bubbly, chip tune. That's how it's described. Uh, yeah, I like the, uh, the bounciness of it. And, um, it's described as a piece of music that would probably be very good to exercise to. And I guess that what's, that's what's going to lead us on to New Year's resolutions. So here is a, just a small snippet of Sunny Morning Exercise Club. And I'll play a little bit more at the end of my podcast as well. I've actually played that piece while I've been running through the bush. It, it is quite fast moving and uh, a nice piece of music to get um, get my legs going. And I had a, a milestone over Christmas. Um, Christmas Day marked the end of three years that I've been a runner. So I'm now into my fourth year as a runner. And I just made a resolution that Christmas three years ago that I was going to get fit. And I've always been interested in exercise, I've always done some form of exercise, but it had been many years since I'd actually run, and it was the thought of doing aerobic type exercise that was um, a very hard thought, I couldn't couldn't actually think about doing that for a long time, I thought it sounded like too much hard work, I was too old, perhaps I should just stick to the Pilates that I was doing, also I was doing a lot of hand weight routines. I wish God, God gets your blood moving a bit, but it's nothing like running. And then on Christmas Day three years ago, my husband Andy, he said to me, should we go for a, a walk? Um, this was during Christmas afternoon after we'd eaten a lot of food, and I thought, well, perhaps we ought to go and do a bit of exercise, get out there in the sunshine, and... Yeah, walk off our Christmas dinner. But I went and got my shorts on and my, my running shoes on and um, my husband said, well, what have you got changed for? I thought we were just going for a stroll. And I said, oh, I just have this yearning to go for a run to see if I can actually get my body moving a bit faster than normal. Can I run? So we went down to bush tracks. And yeah, I ran. Admittedly, I ran downhill and I couldn't run uphill again. I was too tired by that time. And I only ran a short way, but I ran enough to convince myself that I could possibly become a runner. I used to be a runner years ago when I was much younger and I had these uh, thoughts going through my head. I can remember how much fun running was having the wind whip through my hair being able to feel that I could run forever it was a nice feeling and so as I was running along I was remembering all this and thought yeah I want to do this again so the next day boxing day I went out uh, with my husband Andy and a couple of our older children and decided this was I was going to get fit I was going to run and, oh, I had a horrific time. I couldn't even run one side of the football field. And I came home and I collapsed on the bed. My ears were sore with all the blood pounding through them. My legs were sore. My face was red. Couldn't breathe properly. And I just flung myself on the bed and I thought I was going to die. I just said to them, go away. I'm going to die. I'm never going to go out there and run it again. This is much too hard work. If I ever survive, I'll be sensible. I'm getting old. I'm never going to be a runner. I don't want to do this again. It's too painful. But what I didn't actually count on was my younger girls coming in and they were said, Oh, mum, we heard you went running. You're fantastic. You're super mum. We really, we really admire you, mum. And, and can we come running with you tomorrow? And so I had to get up the next day and go out again and run. Because my younger children had, were so proud of me. They were encouraging me along and I couldn't let them down. And so every morning for weeks I got up and went out before breakfast with my girls and my husband Andy when he was on holiday and tried to get fit. And I was using a program, a nine week program. That you ran, ran, ran for so long, walked for so long and gradually you increased your running amounts and decreased the amount of time you're actually walking and by the end of nine weeks I think it was I was supposed to be running a non-stop 5k well after nine weeks I wasn't anywhere anywhere near running a non-stop 5k and I felt really discouraged I remember saying to my husband one evening I've just had enough I can't do this I, I I'm fitter than I was but I I really don't ever think I'll run 5k and he said concentrate on what you can do and don't think about what is still left to do. Uh, he says you have, you've got, you've been out there for a long time. You're a lot fitter than you used to be. You're actually running. Don't look too far ahead and make unrealistic goals for yourself. It will happen in time. Concentrate yeah, on the positives and not on what still you've still got left to achieve. And I think that was one of the best pieces of advice I ever had. I stopped trying to keep up with a nine week program and just listened to my own body. And, uh, yeah, I was encouraged to keep going. And I think sometimes uh, this is what we need to do with our own children and their learning. Sometimes we inadvertently discourage them when we could be encouraging them. And I'd like to talk about that too. But um, first, back to my running. I think if anybody has made a resolution, a New Year's resolution to get fit this year, I think it's entirely uh, possible that you will get fit. There's no reason why uh, towards the end of January anybody ought to give up because I think if I can get fit and I can run, anybody can. But two things I would say if you can find uh, somebody to run with or to exercise with, then um that, that makes all the difference because I think if I didn't have my family around, if we hadn't done this as a family exercise, I might not have succeeded on my own. Uh, Find people that are encouraging, that, that will encourage you along, and, yeah, say all the right things. Wow, you're super, you can do this. I think that's what I would say to you if you want to exercise and keep on exercising well past the new year. Another thing about exercising with people that you enjoy being with, it bonds you together. We've had some great times over the last three years running as a family. If you find some friends or some family to run with, I'm sure that you'll enjoy the experience a whole lot more than if you exercise by yourself. Now back to um, encouragement and discouragement as far as children's learning goes. I've noticed this uh, a great deal in writing, when children are learning to write. I think this is a common situation where we can discourage children without really meaning to. Uh, I've had a lot of children, well all my children are writers, and they've all come running to me at various times when they've been younger with uh, pieces of writing they want to share with me. Please read this, Mum. Can I read this out to you, Mum? And they have been, yes, excited and want to share their work with me. And uh, it took me a long time to realise that I was actually discouraging them by concentrating on the wrong things. It's so easy to look at little children's writing and think, "Oh wow, the spelling's all wrong. How will they ever learn to spell?" This is, and I can't even read half of this. And by picking holes in what they're doing, I think it really discourages children. They think, well, I I can't do this. If, If you have to write and spell everything properly, then I can't do this. And they give up and go away. And they might not write. I really found with my own children that things like spelling have fallen into place As they've been writing as long as I encourage them to keep on going and they write more and more I don't have to worry about spelling it comes with time but it can be hard to uh, overlook that at the beginning and some of my children's writing has been so poorly spelled that I haven't even been able to read it the way I got over that was I've asked them to read it to me would you like to sit down and read that to me Um, yeah not make a big thing about it I was talking to my uh, daughter, Imogen, the other day. She's 20 now. Um, If you've been listening to my podcast or read my blog, you'll know that she's doing a professional writing and publishing degree at the moment. She's in her third and final year. and Writing really is her thing. So obviously I didn't uh, discourage her too much when she was small. But we were remembering something we talked about in a previous podcast about unschool writing, about how children, when they set off, Um, writing they often want to write in the style of the authors that they enjoy reading so they want to write a book exactly like their favorite books and which is a lot of fun uh, at the time and I think it's a very good way of learning they follow the model the example of their favorite authors and I don't think we ever get too old for that I've been doing a lot of reading recently fiction reading which is unusual for me because I've got a reputation for starting uh, books and then getting distracted by another one that comes along and I think well I have to I just have to read this one so I put the first one down and obviously a third book comes along and yes I've unfortunately never seemed to get to the end of anything but just recently I have read a number of fiction books from start to finish and I've been really excited by them too they're I think maybe two or three podcasts ago, I was talking about how I found this list of 50 must-read Australian novels. It's on the Booktopia site, and um yeah, it's was uh, put together by readers. They're the 50 most favourite Australian novels of the Booktopia readers. I had a look through that list of 50 books, and there was a number on there that I have already read. Not many, but just a few. And there were some interesting-sounding other novels on the list, and I thought to myself, well, what if I go to the library and borrow some of these books and make it a goal to read as many on this list as I can? And that's what I've been doing, and it's proving to be a very interesting experience because all the books are written by Australian authors. They're all about Australia, but each book is has a different take on Australia, coming from a different angle, a different perspective. Each of the authors are, they're all writing in a different style. So I'm being immersed in the subject of Australia, but seeing it from many, many different ways. Um, and I'm learning something different from each book. And this makes me think about multi-directional learning. Now, I don't really know what multidirectional learning means to most people. i have there's a few definitions online, and some scholarly articles have been written by education people which I don't understand. So maybe their idea of multi-directional learning is different from mine. But the way I feel think about it is that we can approach a topic from many different directions rather than going in a uh a, a one-way line that like we can approach maths say by reading a textbook and going from go to woe and just moving along that one line or we can approach maths from many different directions and many different resources and learn it all out of, it's not necessarily in the textbook order. We can approach it backwards and forwards and from many different directions. It's like putting a puzzle together, that we get a little bit of the puzzle here and a little bit of the puzzle there, but it all fits in together to give us an overall picture. And it's a very interesting way of learning. Well, I found it too to be so. Uh, History is another way that we have approach it in multi-directions. For example, uh, if we've read a book about World War II, then I might go out and look for lots of other ways and media maybe of approach, you know, to learn about World War II, some some DVDs, YouTube videos, poems, artworks, anything, and I might tempt my girls with that, but more especially novels. where We do enjoy reading uh, a lot of novels on the same topic. So how am I getting on with my list? What books have I read and what am I learning? What I'm learning uh, as far as style goes is I'm feeling excited about writing, but reading different books written by different authors in different styles has given me a lot of ideas about possibilities, writing possibilities, the way we can organise our words, the different ways of telling a story. And I guess I'll mention a few of these as I go through a few of the books that I have been reading. But the first book I want to talk about is Picnic at Hanging Rock by Joan Lindsay. I don't want to go over the story again because I spent a lot, a lot of time talking about this a couple of podcasts ago. Yeah, I, but I did say that I wanted to go out and watch the movie once I'd read the book. And I found a copy of the movie online. Uh do a bit of Googling, you might find it as well. And I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, it was good. It was atmospheric. Uh, the music was stirring. Scenery was spectacular, especially if you love the Australian bush. And I do. We live right next to us, you know, backs onto our house just down the road. I really love the Australian bush. And so the movie was just tailor-made for what I like. Um, it stayed. The movie stayed very true to the storyline of the book. A couple of the minor storylines were omitted, but I don't think that that affected the movie at all. Um, yeah, it was good. So I'd, I'd recommend that, and I think a lot of other people would too because uh, the critics' consensus was visually me- mesmerising. Picnic at Hanging Rock is moody, unsettling, and enigmatic. A masterpiece of Australian cinema and a major early triumph for director Peter Weir. And it got 94%... Um rating in the was it tum, tmo, 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 tomato meter or <laughs> tomato meter. I'm not sure how you say that. But anyway, 94% is pretty good. You can't get much better than that. Now after I read that book, I was really uh, wanting to read the Shirley by Darcy Island, which you might remember is the book I sent to my English uh, sister-in-law. I thought that she might enjoy that. And the Shirley, the word Shirley means burden. And it's about a swaggy swagman, Macaulay. He lives a life on the road, always travelling, looking for work. He is a tough, what we call, uzzy bloke. He, uh, what he does is he, well, actually he goes, he settles down for a short while, gives up life on the road, he marries. But then he finds out that his wife is unfaithful. And what he leaves her, but what he does is he takes his daughter from her, from his wife in spite. Not because he wants the daughter, but because he wants to hurt his wife. And the daughter becomes his Shirley, his burden. He has two swags upon his back. The swag containing his possessions and his daughter who is four years old. And the daughter called Buster. Neither the wife nor the husband really want Buster. And uh, over the course of the story, of course, Buster influences Macaulay's life tremendously. It's a very good story. There's a, a 1987 TV series, which I'd like to watch. I think I have watched it many, many years ago. Uh, it stars Brian Brown as Macaulay and Rebecca Smart as the daughter of But um, not having seen it for a long time, I don't know how true it is to the book version, but I do know that they've changed the age of the child from four to ten, which probably makes it a lot easier to be acted out. There's also a 1957 black-and-white version starring Peter Finch, and I don't really know anything about that one. Now, the third book I read was My Brother Jack by George Johnston, and it's described as semi-autobiographical. It tells the story of David Meredith and his older brother Jack. Now, Jack is an average Aussie bloke, another bloke, tough, hard-working, decent, fairly uneducated and david uh, his is his younger brother. he describes David as sonky, he's different in every way, he's not tough, he doesn't get into fights, he's more interested in reading and writing, and eventually he becomes a journalist and he become uh, during the war he's a war correspondent and he's a well-regarded war co- correspondent even uh labelled a hero. Everybody likes him. Everybody looks up to him, including Jack in the end. And Jack, he admires his younger brother David so much. And he says that he was wrong about education. Education is really worthwhile. But David himself, he feels, he is living this life that everybody thinks is so wonderful, but he feels empty inside. He has to face the fact that he isn't such a good person as everybody around him believes. It's, yeah, a story of self-revelation. And I think this is, so far, the most favourite book I've read of the Australian novels. So good that I went online afterwards and had a look to find out some more information about it. And I think this is a very good way of learning, reading a novel, and then feeling uh, encouraged to go, I want to know more, go online, do a bit of Googling, see what else I can find out about the book. I did a lot of that with Picnic at Hanging Rock. And, yeah, I did a bit with, of, um, with this book, too, and I found out that there are two sequels, Clean Straw for Nothing and A Cartload of Hay, and they're available on Kindle, and there's also an EPUB version available if you do some Googling, or I could put it in the program notes if you are interested. But, yes, I'm, I instantly went and bought a copy of those because uh, I want to continue the story. I want to find out what happens. Will David really face... Uh, his problems and will he become more honest I want to know what happens next again there's um, a tv series which I haven't seen Uh, some of these uh, uh, I like to google them and see if I can watch them online whether they're on youtube and I haven't been able to find any links that will let me do that so I think that if I want to watch my brother jack I'm going to have to go and buy a copy yeah a dvd Maybe it's time to mention the coarse language that I mentioned in my introduction. Yes, uh, the book that I'm thinking about as I say this is Cloud Street by Tim Winton. It really is it's a very, very popular Australian novel, but yeah, it has a lot of coarse language in it, a uh, coarse way of describing things. The characters take, uh, God's name in vain, which might upset some readers. And I was thinking about this. Is this acceptable when we're reading novels and when we're our children are reading novels should we steer away entirely from anything that that is has bad language in it or characters who are immoral shouldn't we steer our children to only towards everything that is good i think that the world is not a perfect it's obvious the world is not a perfect place and we're not perfect people And if we present the world to our children as being perfect all the time, it's not realistic. I think when children are very young, we need to keep them safe and cocooned, cocoon their innocence, let them grow a little, believing the world is a safe and good place. But as they get older, I don't think we're doing them any favours by keeping reality away from them. And when they get to the appropriate age, they should be allowed to be introduced to things which... Will give them food for thought. The things that are not perfect in the world. I uh, see the world as it truly is. Now, um, I was talking to Imogen about this uh, over coffee the other day, and we were talking about whether we should read everything first. All the books that we would like. Books that our children want to read should a parent read them first before handing them over to the children to make sure that they are suitable. I think when children are very young, it's very easy to keep uh things that are not appropriate for their age away from them. We buy the books, we take them to the library, we suggest books, and they're not likely to come across anything which is too damaging on their own. But as children grow up, I think that we need to trust them to for themselves, we shouldn't be reading everything for them. If they come across anything inappropriate, we should hope that they know right from wrong and will, uh, stop reading, put it back, say, well, this isn't appropriate reading for me. And I find that with, uh, my older girls, they do do that. They go to the library, they come back with a big stack of books between them, and they usually end up taking some back unread. They'll say to me, well, I started that and it wasn't appropriate and that's a reject, we're taking that one back. But that's all right, Mum, we've got plenty more here to read. They know what is right and what is wrong. So I think, what is right, what is wrong? Because some of the books that we might say are wrong might actually be okay, such as maybe Cloud Street by Tim Winton. It's got coarse language, it describes sexual scenes, but does that automatically mean that it is wrong? I think the, maybe it comes down to authentic characters and authentic settings and the message of the book. To portray characters authentically, we have, they have, their dialogue has to be authentic. If it's like these characters in Cloud Street, they don't talk like professors at university. The people they are, they're working class people. They talk Language has to mirror the type of people they are. We can see who they are through their language. Uh, the way that the scenes are described is probably the way they would describe them amongst themselves. But are their stories worth a telling? Should we be reading them? Well, I think the message of Cloud Street was very positive. There was a lot of spirituality in it. There was a lot of uh, love in it. The message was, I think, very much of love and acceptance and family values. And I really enjoyed the book, yeah. It's actually on the English HSC syllabus. I don't know if I would actually have, um, put it on the syllabus and offer it to teenage children. Um, I think it's more of an adult book, but yeah, a lot of parents, I imagine, would, uh, complain about that. But we all have our different ways of looking at things, our different standards, and I guess all we ultimately want to do is protect our children. Um, inappropriate uh, situations and experiences. Though I found with unschooling that with trust, respect, with actually discussing and talking over these things with our children, they form a right conscience, a right opinion. They do uh, listen to us and if they have uh, a basis of truth, they can judge things accordingly. Imogen and I were also talking about banning books. When you ban books, when you tell children they must not read that, it's banned. If a child wants to read that book, they'll find a way to read it anyway. It suddenly becomes very attractive. Imogen was telling me about something online that uh, people are being involved with. It's something to do with banned books. I don't know if it's blog posts written about them. But banned books, they hold some sort of fascination for people. The title, banned, everybody is interested. So maybe banning things isn't a good idea. If we want to keep our children away from them, maybe it's more to do with being honest and talking, discussing things together, and getting our children to trust us. But what did I like about this book, um, Cloud Street? From a writing point of view, I was very fascinated by Tim Winton's descriptions. Oh, what a, what a, a rich language he uses. I really do, did enjoy that. And also the way he used tenses. He swapped effortlessly from present tense to past tense and back again without even me noticing. I kept thinking to myself, now I must look out for the point where the tenses change. But I kept forgetting. I got so involved in the story. It worked really well. The other thing he did was he didn't use punctuation um for speech in the conventional way. He just left it out altogether, which was a bit confusing sometimes. I had to go and reread a few bits to see if it was actually speech or if it was just description. And that that became confusing, but it was also very interesting. And I think, well, that just shows that rules, grammar rules, punctuation rules can be broken. Maybe they can only be broken successfully by those who have already gained fame and success as authors. Maybe that, that gives them the right to do things their own way. Because I remember in a university course that one of my older children was doing, He used alternative punctuation and got criticised for it, when I do know that there are sometimes different ways of punctuating, but the lecturer or the tutor wanted him to punctuate in the way that she was teaching. So maybe that's a luxury we people have once they have had success of their own. I just want to mention one other book that I've been reading it, uh I read I came to say goodbye by Caroline Overington which was on that list of 50 and that's why I read it and it's uh, a good well, described as a good read a woman's weekly favorite it's a quick and easy read a popular book page turner uh, a lot of people would enjoy this I imagine a lot of women would read this I read it in a day or so And I didn't really like it. I found it very depressing. I didn't like the characters in it. I can see why it's popular, but um, I didn't like it much myself. I just didn't connect with any of the characters. I did, however, like one paragraph near the end of the book, which made reading the book worthwhile. It says something along the lines of, Family looks after family. It doesn't matter what they have done, what mistakes they have made in life that they're still our family we still welcome them back we still help them because we love them unconditionally and i think that's very unschooly. loving unconditionally and i guess there is a, a place in our lives for pa- fast page turning reads we don't always want to work hard when we read sometimes we just want to relax with a book and if it's not morally wrong why not it gives a bit of escapism and i think also for our children they have a need in their lives for quick reads too it doesn't Every book doesn't have to be one that teaches them something or that takes a long time to read, that they have to deep, dig deep, deep to read. Uh, especially when children start out to read, I remember a lot of my girls especially liked the series, like fairy series and, um, oh, I don't know, other easy reads. I, I remember reading Enid Blyton when I was younger and I just went through them really fast. I think there is a time and a place for that sort of read. Uh, And I have also found that children pass through that phase. It doesn't satisfy them for too long, and they want to get their teeth into something a little bit more challenging. So there's no need to worry about it. They do move on when they're ready. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my thoughts on a few of those Australian books. Maybe you'd like to go out and have a look at them as well. It made me think about other book lists. Oh, I like lists. Uh, probably I could go and look for the best books on, fiction books on World War Two, or the best fiction American fiction books or whatever, just looking for lists and they're a great place to start. And will I read all 50 books on that list? I don't know. I think that I'll probably come across some which I don't like or which I feel are inappropriate and I probably will just put those aside. The other thing is that I might get fed up of reading Australian novels. My passion for, might be fulfilled. I, my interest satisfied for, for the moment. It might come back later on. I think that's a, a with, um, self-directed learning that does happen. We pursue a passion for so long, an interest for so long. And then we feel satisfied and want to go in a different direction, but we might come back later on, and children are doing this all the time. I'll put together some program notes as usual to put on my blog, uh, Stories of an Unschooling Family, if you would like some links to the books or to anything else that I have mentioned. And yeah, also if you'd like to go over to my Facebook page, it's Sue Elvis Writes. I've been posting on there. Just some extra photos, information, links to resources that I feel are interesting. You're welcome to come over and join my Facebook community. And then there's iTunes. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, you can do so through iTunes. I thank everybody that has done that. Uh, It's always very nice to find out that someone is following my podcast or my blog. It's really lovely. Thank you. And one more thing, I'd like to say hello to San. San is a friend in England and she's thinking about putting together a podcast of her own. And she left a comment on my blog the other day saying she's borrowing a book about podcasting from the library. And I thought, well, why didn't I do that when I began podcasting? That's a very sensible thing to do, to go out and do a bit of reading around the subject before beginning. And I sort of dived in head first. I just found The program I needed to start recording my voice, a platform to put my podcasts on, and that's all I did. I just sat there, spoke, uh, put it all together, and then posted it on Podbean and wrote a blog post about it. And as I've been going over the last was 18 editions, I've been learning a lot about it, making a lot of mistakes. None of my podcasts are very professional-sounding, I'm sure. Uh, Trying new things out as I go, and perhaps it might have been more sensible to have got all these issues sorted out at the very beginning, but it's an adventure, and I like like everything else, we learn as we do. Well, one of the things that I would like to try new this week is I've been listening to a few podcasts, and some of them seem to have a catchy, you know, catchphrase, especially to finish on, something to end, rather than just, I'll see you next week, goodbye, And, for example, the Catholics next door always say, what do they say? Know your faith, live your faith, share your faith. So I thought I would do that this week. I'm not going to say that one. Obviously, that's taken. So what am I going to say? Well, how about, until next time, trust, respect, and love unconditionally. What do you think about that one? I hope that's okay and I will probably see you next week with another podcast and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this one. Uh, Thank you. There we go. Trust, respect and love unconditionally. And I'll finish off with a little bit more of that piece of music by Origami Repetica.